this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So do you remember Sully, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson River? He had done everything there is to do in an airplane. He was even a trainer of other pilots, yet he had never had the opportunity to land an airplane on the Hudson River. He had one shot at greasing that landing and he nailed it. And when it comes to selling your business, you've got one shot. One shot to make sure you punch above your weight when you go to sell your company. One shot to make sure you don't make some of the most common mistakes that entrepreneurs make when they sell their business. That's why I wrote the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for anyone looking to sell their company. You can get it along with some gifts for my listeners at builttosell.com slash selling. Hey, thanks for joining. It's uh, about a minute to the top of the hour. I'm John Warlow. I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jeremy Weiss, who is the co-founder of Rise25. And I'll introduce him in a second, but I just wanted to say for folks who've just joined a little bit early, so Phil and, and Nana and Jack and Tim and Michelle and Lisa and Adam, Mark, Gary, Eric, Brian, Waltz, you guys have been here for a while. Another Brian, Betty, Chris, uh, Stephanie, Scott, Sandy, Rich, Richard, Lisa, Karen, Todd, great to have all of you guys here. Phil's just joined. Looks like we've had John who's just joined. Welcome, John. And Chuck is with us. Randy's just jumped on. Hey, Randy, good to have you here. Looks like Denise is with us. Steve's just uh, jumped on. So great to have all of you guys here. Uh, we're about a minute from getting started. I'll tell you the format for today. Jared is a bit of a different uh, shtick. So this is a Built to Sell Radio Intel where... Uh, Jeremy's going to do the interviewing and he's going to sort of talk. We're going to just kind of riff about some of the, the last few stories of Built to Sell um, radio. You can ask questions and you can do that in the GoToWebinar control panel, which is on the right-hand side of your screen. So uh, we'll take questions as many as we can in the time we've got. Looks like Stuart's joined us, Lori, James, Christina, George, Kevin. Heron's with us, another Gordon, Steve. I can't name them all, but it's great to have all of you guys here. And uh, with that, I'm going to introduce Jeremy Weiss, who is the co-founder of Rise25. Jeremy, you've done a lot of these interviews with entrepreneurs, so tell us where you want to go from here. Yeah, I'm excited because Built to Sell Intel is one of my favorite things of the month. We get to hear your expertise, John. I know on the interviews, you're asking the questions, but I want to hear your biggest takeaways from these interviews. So we're going to recap the biggest takeaways from the last month on Built to Sell Radio. And um, you're going to, you know, John here is going to overlay his thoughts and advice, which I'm excited to hear. And, you know, you do a major job of asking the questions, but now I want to hear your expertise. And if you don't know John, if you're on here, um, he's a founder of Value Builder System, a simple, it's a simple software for building the value of a company used by thousands of businesses worldwide, the Value Builder System you know, incorporates, people don't know, I mean, some people just know as a book, some people know the diagnostic tools, John, it includes a value builder score. If you haven't taken it, go to their website and take it. Um, and it's offered by a global network of their independent advisors known as certified value builders. And I've talked to a number of them and it's really interesting the expertise they can overlay. And those businesses that achieve the value builder score of 90 or greater are worth double 
the average performing business. And so check out his book, Built to Sell. I think I've listened to it, John, maybe three times or so. I'm just a slow learner. Uh, it's creating say. a business that can create, thrive without you. And it's been recognized by Fortune Inc. is one of the best business books. Um, and you could also obviously check out Built to Sell Radio. He wrote The Automatic Customer and his latest one, The Art of Selling Your Business. Um, so check all of those out and go to builttosell.com. But I want to chat first with, you know, the last month's episodes include Sean Finder, Kieran Dave Kirpin, Eitan Wiener, and Sebastian Johnston. And um, there's so many lessons in these. And I wanted to start with Sean Finder. And Sean Finder, if you you should check it out, but basically he founded AutoClose and it was an email marketing platform um, and he built AutoClose to 1 million in revenue when a chance, you know, he was at a conference and just randomly he met, uh, it led to an acquisition conversation with VanillaSoft. And, um, you know, it was interesting about the conversation, which I want to hear your thoughts on, was the company the valuation the company Vanilla did was way off from what Sean thought it was it was worth. And um, so I'd love to hear, you know, there were a couple of things about maximizing customer retention, keeping your books in order, and the, uh, the acquisition when they're so far apart. So I'd love to hear what you liked about Sean's story. So much to like in Sean's story. One of the things that you raised in your introduction was that he met his ultimate acquire at a trade show. And I think this is so common. I hear it again and again that, that, you know, you go to a trade show and not only are you meeting potential customers, but you're also meeting potential acquirers because the same people that are exhibiting in the trade show are going to be in the same industry, have all kinds of strategic reasons to buy you. So it's just one of those hidden reasons to show up at your industry events, even if you're kind of bored and tired of them. I realize we've all been kind of locked out of industry events for the last 18 months, but hopefully here soon we'll be able to get back to doing trade shows and conferences. And I think it's just one of these hidden reasons that, uh, to go is to is to meet potential acquirers. So yeah, I think I, I think that stood out for sure. And and I also uh, really you know was shocked by or or kind of took was taken aback by just the gap between where Sean was on valuation. He was looking for eight times revenue. And we should mention AutoClose is a software company, right? So they trade at sort of totally different multiples than traditional businesses, but he was looking for eight times revenue and, and VanillaSoft, when they, their first sort of foray, they came in at two times revenue. So there was like a massive gap between the two, which I think was, was a pretty, uh, pretty, a big gap to close. <laughs> That's what I wanted you to talk about because you get to ask the questions, but what are some best practices in navigating that you don't want to piss someone off Obviously, um, what have you seen or heard or experienced uh, navigating when it's such a far, you're so far from a part? But I'm sure it happens all the time. Like they come yeah. in at X amount and then you're expecting Y. What are some best practices in navigating that and in maintaining the relationship, you know, even if maybe you're not interested? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a couple of the simple things out of the gate is, is to remain composed and and not lose your cool. There, there's really no benefit. I mean, we hear these stories, business folklore, people like pounding their fist on the table. It's, uh, in my experience, that never works. I think, if, uh, you know, uh, you know, B 
being very cordial and, and, and calm through the process. They probably had to go through some hoops to develop an offer, maybe getting permission for their board. So even the fact that you're getting an offer, even if it's lower than you want, they probably done some work. So acknowledging that and thanking them for that, I think is important. I think time can be on your side, obviously, if they're uh, if you're not happy with the offer, there's no reason to enter into a furious negotiation. In Sean's case, he did a great job. He he sort of said, like, I think we're just too far apart here. Happy to kind of keep the conversation going. And but he didn't sort of force the issue. And so they kind of parted ways. I think six weeks later, um, Vanillasoft came back, said, look, we've met with our board. We're still interested. And I think we can get closer on the deal terms. And I think their, their next offer went from, from two times to three and a half times revenue. So now, you know, we're getting into a, into a conversation. And I think Sean was sort of leaning in at that point. So that was good. I think the other thing that I would say is, and this is one of my big learnings from the listening to this episode and listening to others as well, is that, uh, you know, acquirers are going to try to get a proprietary deal. A proprietary deal being where they negotiate just directly with you. You don't try to get competing offers. I mean, that's that's the panacea for an acquirer, right? That you're too lazy, you know, naive, uh, inexperienced to go get other offers. And 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 I think that's they're preying on you, right? Like they're trying to get your business for less than it's worth without competitive attention. And then again, the the deal here, they started at, I think, somewhere between one and a half and two times revenue. And I think they ultimately ended up at five and change. I think that's what I've written down here, four and a half to five times revenue. So, I mean, they they came up like more than two times. And and that was partly, you know, Sean's experience and, and his kind of negotiating panache but it also just shows that the initial offer that they're going to give you in many cases is far below their their expectations and they're trying to kind of get you without competition and it's one of the reasons i think almost all businesses are better served by by you know creating a competitive you know marketplace for their company to, regardless of how disruptive it may seem at the time yeah he so he walked away in a nice way and you rec- you know it's sometimes maybe hard to not get emotional if someone just like feels like an insult, but um, it's not per- you're saying it's not personal. Like they they had their way of coming to a number and and maybe just appreciate the offer in general. You know, oftentimes we neglect, we don't have the gratitude and appreciation, and just ha- you know just let that think about that first before you're you get mad about you know in a lower offer than you want. Yeah, and I think the second yeah. the second thing is he went back with justification for his second multiple, like what he wanted, right? So he didn't just go, that's not good enough. I need you to do better, or that's not good enough. I need you to hit X. He went back with eight times revenue, but he had some pretty significant justification for that. So we said, look, I mean, if you wanted to write as many code as many lines of code as i've written to build this software it would take you many millions of dollars at you know he he written it out and says like i can't remember the number off the top of my head but it's like 270,000 lines right. of code and if you hire a developer in these countries you know you're you're paying 64 cents per line of code again i'm don't i'm not the, the numbers are wrong the principle totally. is right yeah. the idea was that he basically he he put the math on the table to the acquirer and said, even if we're just buying the code, it would cost you this million dollars, this many millions of dollars to write that code. And I think that's a really 
uh, interesting play. You know, we talk about this idea of A, doing the math for the acquirer, but B, you know, there's a conversation that happens in a boardroom when you're not there. As an entrepreneur, you're you're not there. And the conversation is the build versus buy decision. And that's when they close the door at Vanilla Soft and they're like, okay, we got this guy Finder. He wants, you know, eight times revenue for his company. Like he's built this email solution. Like if we were going to build it from scratch, it would cost us X millions of dollars in development and Y years in time. Uh, and the other alternative is to buy them. And he wants eight times. What do you think? And it's the build versus buy decision. And again, if you make the case in your uh, conversation that that to build what you've created would take years and and many you know many millions of dollars, that's a way to 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 make the case that it's just simply worth buying you. So I think Sean did a great job on making that. I case. love that. Yeah, John, I love that because you make it objective and also it's proactive. Like I feel like what you just people can take a proactive approach to that because you know they're going to go back in to that room and think, should we build this or should we buy it? So I love what you said there because you already, if you know you're gonna, they're going to have that conversation, just be proactive about it and give the numbers to back it up, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I want to take anyone who has questions, ask them in the chat. I'm going to take them in a minute. But um, before we take the question, John, I'm curious what you thought about his decision. Um, they kind of iterated as a company. So they iterated, they were doing selling email lists. And then they mm -hmm. saw that people were taking the email list and using these other platforms to send these cold emails out. It's a big decision to just start a software company, I think. Yeah. Um, they could have just kept down that route. And this kind of goes into your thoughts on Subscription, you know, if you if anyone listens to Built to Sell and there's there's um, you know key drivers, there's subscription models and automatic customer. What did you think about? I wonder if they would have just his decision to create a software company, which is a big undertaking, despite selling these one-off like email lists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kudos to to Sean for doing that because I mean, I think selling email lists, talking kind of third-party emails. It, it's a tough way to make a living. And I think it's it's a very highly commoditized space. And, and you know, you're flirting up against the rules. I, Sean didn't break any rules. He was careful about, you know, GDPR and Castle and all that stuff. So that, I'm not suggesting he was breaking the rules. But I mean, the rules are always changing in that space. And you're sort of at, at the mercy of the government regulations. And, and, you know, one change in rules can put you out of business basically overnight. So it, like, it's not a very good business to be in, frankly, not a very sellable company either. Uh, so I think the decision was cool. It was courageous. It was like, one day we're selling bananas, the next day we're selling watermelons. Like it's a, it's a departure, like in a big way, obviously. Uh, but he did have some pre-existing customers. He had some great enterprise customers that were buying his lists that were natural, you know, purchases of the software. And I think he kind of transitioned pretty well. I mean, there aren't a lot of list brokers that could turn around and become software, you know, uh, developers. And so I think, you know, kudos to him for doing it. it I think it's a bold move, but I think it was a smart one. Um, so question from the audience and at each of these, just feel free to put them in the chat the whole way through and we'll look at them. But a question, you asked a question, John, about churn. And so mm -hmm. question from the audience is, what have you seen companies do 
to help lower churn? Because that probably comes up over and over in subscription-based or SaaS companies. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sean nailed this. Uh, you're right. Because in the beginning, he didn't have a clue what he was doing. <laughs> I think he admitted that on the, on the episode, but they, they had a very self-serving. 40% churn or I forgot what it was on the episode. Yeah. yeah. It was massive. It, yeah, it was 30 or 40%. It was, it was through the roof. And basically, uh, you know, in the early days, they had a, they had a, a very hands-off onboarding process, right? So people would buy auto clothes and they might get a couple of emails saying, hey, welcome to the you know, family. Let us know you have questions kind of thing. And the support was handled through some ticketing process. And it was a nightmare. And you're right. They had just astronomical churn. It was just a massive leaky bucket. And so, you know, clearly something had to change. And what they did was hired an onboarding specialist, a customer success person to bring new clients into the fold. And, and that really dramatically improved their churn rates or their, their retention rates dramatically dropped their churn rates. Um, and I can't remember, Jeremy, do you remember the, the actual data points off the top of your head? Oh, you mean what it improved to? Um, yeah. I don't remember, but it was significant. It was like, I yeah. think it was maybe like 10%. It went from like, whatever 40 to like 10 or five or something yeah, but yeah it was, it was, it was like way less yeah. in the beginning it was like arguably if they actually had a subscription company if they were turning over like their entire customer base each year sort of thing uh and then and then by the time they sold the business it had gotten much more kind of in line with what are typical churn rates in a, in a SaaS business so that was great and i think the difference for them and i think the transferable lesson uh, to, to anybody um, is is invest in onboarding. I think that's the one area where you can really uh, reduce your churn rates is to get your customers from the very beginning using your product correctly. Um, it doesn't have to be just software products. It can be, you know, I, I did a speech once for the uh, the Car Wash Owners Association. Like Love that's it. a pretty. I got to go watch that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so. It, but they're all moving to subscription models, as you know, and so you can buy now like a thirty, you know, thirty or forty dollars a month, and you can go to the car wash as many times as you want. So it's a subscription model, right? And yeah. in the early days, the the car wash owners were really hesitant because they thought of the world in terms of gross margin, right? So they're like, I charge eight dollars for a wash, and it's like two dollars for the hot water and the soap. Um, so why am I sending these guys through ten, twenty, thirty times a, a month? if it's going to cost me $2 for every time they go in. And they were thinking very much in this sort of cost structure. And, and the point I tried to make is, is first of all, people are, have got better things to do with their time than go to the car wash once a day. Second of all, what you're really trying to do is get them to see the value in the first month. So if they do come in 10 times in the first month, that's great. That means they're going to be a very loyal sub subscriber. So kind of overinvest in the first 30 days to a point where it's you're underwater in that relationship because that's going to make it sticky for years to come. No pun intended. But yes, that, I love that. So thanks for sharing that. Um, the next, I want to get to the next one. Um, and sure. if you, anyone thinks of other questions, you'll put them in, we'll address them. But um, so Kerry and Dave Kirpin, um, they started Likeable Media, social media agency in 2006. The business grew to more than 50 employees and the couple met for their annual partners retreat. They were thinking, what should we do here? Their business had, had gone up, um, and but they realized when they had that meeting that 90% of their net worth was tied up in the business. And so they decided to sell and they quickly received a 
a cash offer, 100% cash offer of six and a half times, um, which seemed too good to be true. And I'll let you kind of do the punchline on that, um, John, but, um, and what happened with that. And they had, they had a number of LOIs out, um, I think on the business, some, you know, for 60% upfront, 100% upfront. So it just varied with different, um, you know, levels of, of multiples there. Um, so I'd love for you to talk about what you liked about their story. And obviously that we talked to, you talked about productizing a service. You talked about the power of naming during that episode. They yeah. leveraged interns to the nth degree. Um, and they had this, they had this whole model of like tokens or, um, you know, having different, uh, billing system that made it subscription. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts and what you liked about their story. Well, let me finish the punchline for yeah, you on the 100% <laughs> cash offer for a marketing services business, which is virtually unheard of. So six and a half times earnings, which is like, you know, like it's a good outcome for a 50 employee company, service-based business. I, I think in my experience, that would be a fairly good outcome, but I've never heard of a marketing services company, or I shouldn't say never, very rarely would a marketing services company trade without some sort of earnout, where, you know, part of the proceeds would be at risk in the future. And so sure enough, it, you know, weeks into the deal, uh, Carrie gets a call from the acquirer and says, I know we were going to do 100% cash up front, uh, but you know, we've changed our mind. And then they wanted to structure it so that they would pay most of it out over years into the future. And so uh, Carrie and Dave rightly walked away. And in part because they, I think, came to the conclusion that it was a bait and switch. It wasn't like they'd found something in due diligence that led that to them to, to be cautious. It was that they you know, hooked them in with a 100% cash offer, you know, emotionally get them attached to the sale and ultimately change the rules towards, you know, at the end gambling that uh, that time they would be emotionally, you know, connected or, or, or invested in, in the sale. So it's a classic, uh, you know, trick used by acquirers. And I, and I, you know, to Dave and Carrie's uh, great credit, they chose not to take the bait. And in fact, uh, you know, said no, and they, they walked away. And ultimately, a few months later, got an offer of eight and a half times earnings. So a full two turns better uh, with a little bit of an earn out, but a much, much, much better terms than, uh, than were being offered. So it had a happy ending, but not it was it was to Dave and Carrie's credit that they were willing to walk away. So that's one. I like you, Jeremy. I took away a lot from the kind of little family retreat they had because they. I think that yeah, I think it was ninety percent of their net worth, or something. I think they are estimating that ninety percent of their net worth was tied to their business. And I think Dave, if memory serves, Jeremy, you can remind me. But you know, Dave is a little bit more you know, like comfortable with risk, but Carrie is like hyper, hyper conservative. <laughs> yes. And she just couldn't bear the thought that 90% of her, you know, their net worth is tied up in this company. And, yeah. and, and so they decided to sell. And it's a great example of what we refer to as the freedom point. And we're actually coming out with a new tool at Value Builder called the Freedom Score, which, which is designed to, uh, to really help owners think about this. But you know, when your business reaches the value that by selling it, you know, after tax and, you know, transactional costs, 
you've got enough money to live comfortably for the rest of your life. It's really worth asking you like, like why not sell, you know, because, because for every day you hold it, you are effectively risking something that you probably have worked years to attain, which is financial independence. Right. I mean, I think it was Buffett who said, Warren Buffett, who said like, it's insane to risk what you want for something you don't. And, and when you reach financial freedom by, or you would reach it by selling your company, it's, it's a really important time to pull up and say, Hey, like, this is a shot, right? And and we never know, you know, especially in a services business, marketing services of all things, you never know. New technology could wipe you out. Employees could leave on mass. Clients could leave. I mean, there's a litany of things that can happen. Mass pandemic can occur. Yeah, I mean, it goes on. So, uh, so I think it's just worth asking that question. And you're right. You know, if anybody wants to have a master class and how to productize a service, you need to listen to Dave and Carrie's episode. Oh my gosh, what an unbelievable masterclass. So they went from selling time, right? Hours, like most services businesses, which of course is a hamster wheel to nowhere. It's like you're on a treadmill, it's, it's, it's a terrible business model. They went to, to your point, this content uh, what do they call the content credit system? And so instead of charging by the hour, they said, look, we're going to do your social content. We're going to do your tweets, your Facebook posts, your videos, your blog posts. We're going to do it all. And you're going to buy from us an annual allotment of credits. And a tweet might be one credit, a blog post might be 10, a video might be 20. And it's up to you, Mr. Customer, Mrs. Customer, how you want to spend your credits, but we're going to kind of negotiate a, a bulk you know, buy of credits. What does that do? Number one, it 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 stops the commoditization effect of selling by the hour. As soon as you're selling by the hour, you're effectively commoditizing yourself and you're lumping yourself in with anybody else who does that. So you're a social media consultant. Great. I know three of them I'm upwork and the, and one of them's charging me $18 an hour. So what are you going to do to compete with that? N- number two, so it's 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 a commoditization race to the bottom if you're charging by the hour. The, the second thing the content credit system did for them is it created recurring revenue, which is this, you know, we've ad nauseum talked about this, but this was a very valuable uh, revenue stream that acquires love because people bought the content credits on annual subscriptions, right? The third thing that it did, which I loved as well, was it made it easier for their account managers to sell. They had these account managers who were a bit squeamish about selling, didn't know exactly kind of how to have the conversation. They were good at kind of making sure the trains ran on time, but not necessarily great salespeople. But now all of a sudden, it's really easy to sell. Oh, you you just ran out of credits. Um, How many more credits would you like to buy? You don't have to be a rocket scientist or great salesperson to sell a tangible thing like that. And I think I just love this story. There's so much to take away, especially for service company owners. How can someone do that in a non-confusing way, do you think? Like, would you have any suggestions? I feel like they experimented with some of their customers and they kind of laid it out because I could feel, I could see myself confusing people very quickly if I come up Mm -hmm. with a credit system. And then um, are there ways that you have thought about that you could think about this or other people should think about it where you could release something that's subscription-based um, if it's a credit system, because I think this could apply to a lot of companies, like coming up with some sure. kind of credit system. Any advice on 
not confusing someone. That would be my concern is like, well, this is this credit. And now they're trying to figure out in their head the cost to the credit. Um, that's what popped into my head when they were talking about it. I'm like, I can see myself totally confusing someone with it. Any yeah, suggestions on like rolling it out? Yeah, I didn't have the foresight to ask that question. I should have asked it. You should have done the interview, Jerry. I, 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 uh, I didn't think of that. But no, I you're think right. You did, they did talk about it a little bit. Um, oh, did I? Okay. You talked about a. They did talk about it a little bit, and they said that they asked some of the customers. I mean, there was so much going on there um, for yeah. the sale of the company. Like that wasn't the point. I mean, that's why we do the the. Um, Intel, right? Built to sell Intel because I want to, I'd love to hear your thoughts after the fact on how do you roll something like that out, not confuse people or maybe do it in a good fashion because it's a great idea. I'm just curious yeah, I think, I think, on your thoughts. I think you want to, you want to prioritize simplicity over and over, over engineering it, right? So I, I sometimes see subscription models and there's like six choices. It's too many. Right, you're going to paralyze your customer. Right, they're just going to go. Uh, I don't know what to do. I mean, we've all been pitched the the kind of silver, gold, platinum plan, right? And everybody goes for the middle one, which is which is a totally legitimate way to to sell a subscription plan. But be you know going beyond three, I I start to worry a little bit. I think you know, play the end game. The end game is recurring revenue retention. Like if you think about uh, like a retention, like a recurring revenue. I mean, if we go back to auto close, uh, like he was getting four, four and a half times revenue for his recurring revenue stream, right? So, you know, if if you're kind of nitpicking, be oh well, you you know, you used a little bit more of this or a little bit less of that, and therefore we've got to really you know change it. Yeah, I think you're over engineering it. What you're you're, you're striving for is annual recurring revenue, ARR. And the more stable that is and the longer it stays, the better. And so I, I wouldn't be penny rich and pound foolish if to use that old English expression. I think they're, you know, keep your eye on the prize, which is the recurring revenue. So simplicity, you know, I, I wouldn't have a model where it's like, I'm not a big over like usage guy. So like some subscription models, like cell phones are the classic example of this, right? You, so you get a cell phone plan of like, $40 a month, but then as soon as you exceed X number of minutes, you know, the, the meter starts running. And and those penalize the customer for using your product. And 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 while they're a great way to increase, you know, the revenue stream, the recurring revenue stream, they also make people hesitate using it. So I'm not a fan of mm. of um of the you kind want to of encourage them to use it. What's that? You want to encourage them to use it, what you're saying. Yeah, you want to encourage just, them yeah. to use it, right? So I and yeah. I think Dave and Kira did a great job of that. They they weren't selling you know, a hundred credits with the view that, ah, we know six months into the year, we're going to be able to sell another hundred. Like that's not the way they were thinking about it. They were like, no, based on your, what you're trying to do and how much you used last year, like, I think we're going to need about this number of credits. And so there wasn't this sort of bait and switch kind of attitude. Uh, and so I think they did a nice job of that. I don't yeah, have any no. secret sauce, but, but simplicity, yeah. I think is Jeremy's no, would be my. Cause I love that part of the conversation. So thanks for, yeah, don't overcomplicate it and encourage usage, you know? Yeah. Um, the, the other thing, so audience questions. So um, a big one on, there, there's actually two. Um, bait and switch, this conversation. Um, do you, audience question, do you think it was really a bait and switch? What do you look for in a real bait and switch? Or maybe they were just inexperienced. It seemed like when they talked about it, 
the people really hadn't made many acquisitions. How do you tell if it's a true bait and switch or if it's it's maybe, you know, in this case, maybe the person was just in or the company was inexperienced making acquisitions so that they just realized that yeah, was I, not the right move. Yeah, I think your question had the answer baked into it, which is how experienced are they making acquisitions? I, I have a friend who made an acquisition. I'll leave his name out of it because he wouldn't want me to share it. But, you know, he it was his first acquisition. It was a relatively small deal. He offered 100% upfront. And, and uh, a, a number of us were like, are you crazy? That's nuts. And so he went back to them and said, oh, I've been thinking about it. Maybe we got to do this on a structured way. And, and so in his case, it was not some malicious intent or some kind of Machiavellian plan to get the business, you know, bait and switch. It was just simple naivete on his behalf. I think if you're, if you're dealing with a sophisticated acquirer who has bought other businesses, it's unlikely it is just their naivete. It's likely a strategy. So I, again, I don't remember yeah. in Dave and Carey's case, whether the acquirer, the, the kind of first one that offered six and a half was, uh, was a sophisticated acquirer. Uh, but I would be asking that question of myself and of them, like how many other businesses have you bought? And, and if, if the number is more than one, I'd be surprised if it was unintentional. The, the next, the other question was, is about negotiating full control of the PNL. Mm. Um, when you are responsible for, you know, obviously you only get the earnout if you hit your numbers. And they talked about negotiating full control of the PNL. What what are the best ways to navigate that? And then the person just put like, you know, full control of PNL. So I'm just kind of extrapolating a little bit about what they mean by that. But um, how how can a founder start to negotiate that? It's because then they have actually control over the the outcome if they, yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. So it's a great question. Uh, I think, so let's define what an earnout is. An earnout is a situation where you have a set of goals that you need to hit in order to, to get a second tranche or third tranche of, of value for your company. And you're doing that usually in the context, certainly in a marketing services business where you're sort of a division of a larger entity. And, and most of the time, you know, the bookkeeping and mar you know, management, the number crunching of, of your company uh, kind of falls to the acquirer. So they basically take your bookkeeper, let them go and, and, and you know, handle the financing at head office. Uh, that's usually the case. Now, I think in Dave and Carrie's case, they were able to keep their finance person on staff, which enabled them to kind of control that. Uh, that's one sort of thing you can negotiate. I mean, it's, a, it's an important strategic benefit to the acquirer to be able to eliminate your bookkeeper, right? So there's a salary there they can eliminate. So there, you, know, they, you might get some pushback on that. At the same time, that's one way to sort of make sure you're still in control of your billing. Um, the other thing is, is, you know, like you can paper the deal as best you can, uh, meaning you get a good lawyer and, and don't use the same lawyer that incorporated your business to, to, uh, to, to run an M&A deal. It's usually a very different, it's a corporate finance attorney is what you want, or an M&A attorney uh, who does this kind of work and does earnouts all day long and can do them in their sleep. Um, I think the other piece of advice on that is is to try to get your earnout tied to something other than earnings, because earnings is the most easily manipulated by head office, right? So they can graft additional costs under your PL, they can hold back budget items, they can they can they can put costs into your PL that that they control effectively, right? So that's the hardest uh, thing to control. It's a little less 
easy for the acquirer to monkey with revenue. So it might be better uh, to try to tie your earnout to revenue if, if possible. They might give you some pushback on that, but but that's a little less subjective and a little more objective. Um, I know Rob Walling, a guy I interviewed on Built to Sell Radio maybe six months ago, uh, great business, built, uh, built it up and sold it. And he was a product guy, like a product development guy at a software company. And, and so he chose to tie his earnout to the release of a, a product feature, which being a product guy, he really knew that he could release. And so he had 100% confidence that he could release it. Uh, so those are a couple of ideas. Try to get your earnout tied to something other than earnings because that's the most easily uh, manipulated by head office. Mm, I love that. So the next one, uh, John, was Eitan Wiener. Um, and so he was co Eitan and Jonathan Goldman were co-founders of Quantum Networks. Um, it started as like a simple Amazon reseller. I love how you got into the interview and really kind of peppered him with questions on the evolution of his business model because it really started as like more of a Amazon reseller arbitrage and then in, in technology gadgets and then they were producing their own technology gadgets and then they were bundling their technology gadgets with other bigger name products to create these custom bundles and exclusive things that they were doing for these other companies. So it was kind of cool to to see the evolution of of their brand and also helping you know, they were bundling their services essentially so that they had this competitive edge um, because like you said, it's kind of a commodity. And so they started um, their brand Blue Coil and started bundling the products, bought together, striking exclusive deals with reseller arrangements. And um, those things increased their sales and um, their top line revenue to like $30 million. Then it caught the attention of a publicly traded company. Um, and some of the things that you talked about on there was how to differentiate yourself in competitors, um, the reasons they decided to sell, how the inventory was valued was another kind of interesting conversation in this e-commerce world, and um, how to know when an acquirer is motivated to close. Um, so I'd love to hear your what you liked about Aton's story. Yeah, you know, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is the quiet conversation that happens in a boardroom when you're not there, which is, have these guys built something that is truly differentiated, unique, uh, that would take us a long time to replicate? If so, you know, it makes sense to buy them. If, however, they're really just selling on price, there's nothing to there's nothing to buy. You might as well just compete. And so in the early days, and, and like you, I really love the evolution of the business from unsellable, worthless company that's just basically running on a hamster wheel to a very sellable company. The the unsellable, worthless company, and again, this this goes back to anybody who's sort of in distribution, any Amazon resellers. I mean, if all you're doing is buying something, I mean, in his case, he was buying something from China. Um, he was marking it up marginally, like like I think his gross margin was five percent, and then he was selling it on Amazon. And so there's there's just no value in that whatsoever to an acquirer, uh, as as far as I can tell, in the sense that anybody an acquirer will almost always have more money than you. They will almost always have more resources, and so they can simply buy the same trinket from China, and they can sell it for uh you know a penny less and they can outgun you in a in a in a price war all day long and so there's no value in buying your company if they happen to want to be in the business of selling trinkets on amazon they can simply out 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 
outbid you. And so that's a worthless business. And, and I think it was what for me was the most interesting part of the story was the transition. And so, yeah, it had, there were three things that he did, which were brilliant. The first was build a brand. So all of a sudden it was a, it was a differentiated offering. It wasn't just a generic widget uh, sourced in some faraway factory. It was a brand called Blue Coil. And people actually started to, to place value in the Blue Coil brand and they started to look for it and, and the ratings and so forth became meaningful. So they built a brand that was, was great. The other thing that they did is create exclusive contracts. So they said, look, we'll sell your widget or your, in a lot of, he was doing a lot of technology parts. So like microphones, uh, ear, you know, like a lot of like the, the kind of plumbing of the technology space wires yeah. and cables and stuff like that and so he said look we're pretty handy and pretty savvy at selling on amazon we'll be able to sell your stuff on amazon but you got to give us exclusivity and again that gave him a moat around the product line so nobody could just come in and basically start selling the same stuff if you wanted to get a certain you know uh, wire brand or you wanted to get a certain mic stand that you were seeking out, you, you had to buy it through Aton. So he, he built those exclusive arrangements. And, and those two moves allowed him to get his gross margin from 5% up to 20%. Still a low margin business for, you know, for those of us in software, you know, go back to Dave and Carey and in, in, in services, they'd be, they'd be, you know, 100% gross margin. But in the case of selling stuff, hard, you know, manufactured goods, 20% uh, is better than 5%, let's just put it that way. And then the third thing he did was bundles. And you, you touched on this in your introduction. So, you know, part of the way to differentiate a commoditized product is to bundle it with other things that make a solution, right? So, if, so I'll give you an example as a podcaster. And again, yeah, I know you've got this, uh, this, you know about this world as well, Jeremy. Like if you're going to buy a mic, the chances are not only do you need a mic, but you might also need a mic stand and you might need a pop filter and you might need, you know, a bunch of other things that podcasters need. And so instead of just selling each discrete product individually, he bundled them. And those bundles also gave him better gross margins. So I think it was the three things that that he did uh, that that really sort of made the business from essentially unsellable to to one that, that had some value. Yeah. And, and I want to tell, you know, in your built to sell, you talk about the eight key drivers. And so I encourage anyone to check that out. And in them are you know, the monopoly control and the Switzerland structure. And, you know, you just talked about the, you know, you mentioned this on the episode is kind of like, how do you differentiate from your competitors with the monopoly control? I want you to touch on the Switzerland structure because that conversation came up. And I liked that when you talked about because of Amazon, and this also came up because of the other past episode with Beast Gear, there was that conversation with Eitan about how do you, so I'd love for you to talk about the Switzerland structure and then how that applies to, to this interview as yeah, far as Amazon sure. goes. Yeah. yeah, so Switzerland structure is one of the eight drivers. It basically inspired by the country of Switzerland uh, where they're focused on independence, uh, obsessed with it, some might say. Uh, <laughs> they, in, in a business context, what you want to make sure is you don't have any customer concentration. Uh, so you don't have any, like a major customer you know, making up you know, more than 20, 25% of your revenue, that would be a big red flag. Uh, secondly, a, a, an employee 
dependencies. If you've got one key salesperson, for example, that's going to be a problem, or one key operations person that, that, that sort of holds everything together with duct tape, that's going to be a problem. And then the third one, and the often overlooked one, but interestingly, one I'm hearing much, much more about of late, is supplier concentration, meaning you're dependent on a single supplier or platform. And so we've done a few episodes, Beast Gear was one, Atom was another, where they become dependent on a platform. And, and Amazon is the, the most likely culprit in the sense that, you know, a rising tide leaves all boats. If you're an Amazon seller, Amazon has gone through the roof, right, in terms of its success and then fueled by the pandemic, more people are buying stuff on Amazon. And so it brought everybody with it, anybody reselling their stuff on Amazon. The challenge, of course, is that if a large proportion of your revenue comes from Amazon, um, and Amazon delists you, which they want to do if you're selling for less off Amazon or you're actively trying to create relationships with their customers off Amazon, they can delist you or demote you in the search algorithm. If you don't buy enough paid search on their search algorithm, they can demote you. So it just creates this dependency and it's like this junkie, right? Like you become addicted to the revenue and it lets you puff your chest out and go to an EO meeting and say, yeah, we hit 10 million or in A-Town's case, we hit 30 million, it's amazing. The challenge of course is that the further you go down that road, uh, the less valuable your company is because an acquirer will look at it and say, yeah, but if Amazon changes its algorithm or delists you, you're out of business. Um, you know, we see it with anybody who's deeply dependent on the Apple iTunes store, anyone who's dependent on Google's search term, like if they're driving a lot of their new revenue through SEO, search engine optimization, and they rank, they happen to rank in the top couple of listings for their product or service, that can be a major, major liability. If again, Google is always tweaking its algorithm. If you get demoted, uh, you know, it can put you out of business if like 90% of your, you know, revenue is coming from organic search. So any one of these platforms are great individually, but if they start to become a huge part of your revenue, it can be a cause for concern for acquirers. So audience question, John, about in this situation, um, the question is, what do you look for in a strategic buyer? Because I feel mm. like also in this situation, I think the Advantage Solutions was a strategic buyer that can kind of put fuel on by acquiring. And I, I believe also with Vanilla Soft, I think that was also, I think, a strategic acquisition because they did SMS text. And so all their customers were there. So I'm this person's wondering, what do you look for in like an ideal strategic buyer? Because obviously you probably get the most value out of that relationship. Yeah, so three types of acquirers, right? Individual investors are buying and sells a job most most commonly, pay the lowest for your business usually. Uh, private equity companies rolling up businesses in your industry. So they're trying to take advantage of synergies. Oftentimes they're, uh, you know, they're, they're getting a, an accretive lift off buying lots of businesses in the same industry. And then they get a higher multiple for the collection they do for the individual parts. And then strategics. And I think the question was around strategic acquires, whereas strategic has something that they have that, uh, that gives them sort of an investment thesis. That's M&A lingo for there's some sort of strategic value. So, uh, you know, in the case of VanillaSoft and AutoClose, VanillaSoft had lots of customers asking for an email solution. They had the customers, they just didn't have the solution. Um, in the case of, of Quantum Network's acquisition of Aton's business, I think, again, they had customers, uh, they're, they're in the business of, they're kind of, they got their, 
start in the kind of sampling space. If you ever go to Kroger's and people are like sampling new sausages, <laughs> they're, you know, they're the staffing folks that did that. Well, a lot of their customers are looking to get more into e-commerce and looking for e-commerce shops. So there was a, a reason for them to buy mm. Aton's business because he understood, and they understood sort of how to sell on Amazon. So um, yeah, you're looking for someone that has strategic assets that they could frankly, leverage better than you can, right? They've either got a big sales force or a massive distribution channel, or they've got some product hold, but your business is worth more in their hands than it is in your hands. It's kind of the definition of a strategic acquire. Yeah, love it. And we're going to get to Sebastian Johnson. Another just, this was a kind of a question comment in the chat. I'll just mention it, but because we were chatting about the credits and this person wrote that they used to work at an energy company and they tried to sell BTUs rather than fuel, oil, natural gas, or coal. And um, this is what the person said. You know, the, they, the customer furnaces were set to be able to receive all three ways to use the feedstock. So they tried to sell these BTUs. It seems like, this person said in the media content cards, very similar. And he said, I don't know, you know, from what he said, if it worked or not, because he said buying the BTUs was too confusing for the average buyer. So I don't know if they're saying the average buyer is not, you know, their buyer wasn't average and it was confusing or not, but just, I guess, another example where this credit system has been applied um, with this energy company, they tried to have this BTUs. So I thought that was interesting. They shared it in the chat. Yeah, great. Yeah, great, great. Uh, and I think, yeah, there with any subscription model where you're changing the prevailing wisdom, the prevailing billing model, uh, like architects, professional services, you charge by the hour, that's the prevailing sort of model and people kind of get it and they, they kind of, they understand that. And, and so I think that is a significant risk that, that you will confuse customers, which is, which is why, you know, I, I, I do think that trying to keep it simple, very simple for the end consumer makes a lot of sense. Ultimately, I think the upside as Dave and Carrie's case studies suggest is, is much much greater it's sort of worth the risk but uh yeah but anyway i'll, I'll leave dave and carrie to, to, to share their experience exactly. on that. it's a great episode and again if you're if you're into listening if you want to understand productizing a service business it's a it's a master class for sure and if people want to find these episodes um since you're listening to built cell radio i'm assuming you know where to find them but you can simply like type in the name of the guest uh uh, and the words built cell radio into Google and it'll it'll pop right up. So if folks are looking for these stories, it's pretty easy to find. Yeah, check it out. Um, and so, or you can go to builttocell.com, I think slash radio as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So Sebastian Johnson, just a band. So three friends, they co-founded the Amaze app in 2014. The idea was, so social media influencers could upload a picture of what they were wearing, tag the clothing on the Maze app's database of e-commerce retailers, and they receive a commission. Uh, and a Maze app would also receive a commission that they shared with the influencer. And they raised $800,000 through an accelerator, 500 startups, um, and they you know, leveraged their influencers to drive traffic, essentially grew to 4 million active users per month. And eight months later, it was acquired by Zalando, which was one of Europe's largest fashion wholesalers. And so I guess some of the key points were how the traffic arbitrage business model works, how to get uh, developers to accept shares instead of cash for their work, which is interesting, and how an acquire works. And 
Um, why would you reveal the name of the other bidders for your company? And how he kept a poker face through the negotiation despite they were starting to run out of cash. And um, while the acquirer dealt with, you know, they were, you know, actually a big component of how they were serving up the data too. So um, I'd love to hear what you liked about Sebastian's story. Yeah, I mean, Sebastian himself is a really interesting guy, young guy and dynamic. And so I, I enjoyed talking to him. I, I have to be honest with you, Jeremy, it took me a while to get my head around the business model because I'm not a social media guy. I don't really understand what, what influence, I mean, I understand what an influencer is, but it's a world that is really foreign to me. So what I came to learn is, is that there are these influencers like people with social media followings on Instagram and other platforms who make their living effectively promoting certain products. Uh, again, that's kind of like weirdly narcissistic and all kinds of problems. You said um, on there. So I like how I like that you didn't know this because I didn't either. And it helped me to kind of understand and you was like, so is Brad, why would Brad Pitt, I think at one point you're like, why would Brad Pitt bother posting his picture? Yeah. So it sounded like it was this like middle tier of like influencers, not like an A-list celebrity. And so they'll yeah. go through the whole, you know, effort of doing it. Right. Yeah, it sounds like a, like a like a horrible way to make a living. Just <laughs> just I'll just say that outright. But I guess there are these sort of B-list celebrities, we'll call them in air quotes, who will put on an outfit. And they'll like take a picture of themselves and post it to some platform. And the idea behind Sebastian's business is that if if people wanted saw that picture and say, "Oh, I really like the that 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 hat that guy's wearing," they could click on the hat and it would link through to their ability to buy the hat. And and what was again, it goes back to supplier dependency here. What was interesting was that for this model to work they needed to have the backend database of all the products effectively all the all the fashion products that were effectively uh, out there so like millions and millions and millions of different products shirts and hats and scarves and so forth they needed a database of re real time they weren't they didn't have some manual person like uploading the SKU into like it needed to be fed for it to work given the fact that there are millions of unique fashion items, colors, sizes, it, it had to be a database. And so, so technology at play where it will recognize it or something like that. That's right. That's right. So I'm wearing a hat and, and they, you know, it just basically sucked the information out of the database about that hat. And, and so the only way it would work is if, if you had all the data, well, there are, I guess in Europe, there are about five major e-commerce retailers that control like 90% of the, the e-commerce, the fashion bought on e-commerce. So Sebastian knew he had to get all five of those. The problem was this one company, uh, Zalando, which I didn't know until I had the interview, like kind of dominates something like 70% of the market, right? So 70% of the data that this whole model is contingent on is controlled by this one company, Zalando. And so when he got into the negotiation, Zalando knew that. They knew they had him over a barrel. They they knew that his business would be virtually worthless without them. And, and although he tried to get the other e-commerce data providers to come to the table, and, and initially he got sort of three, int you know, interest, 
like not LOIs, but sort of uh, indications of interest, so to speak. Pretty quickly, the two others dropped off, and he was left negotiating uh, just with Zalando. And I think, you know, in his own admission, like that was a really weak negotiating position, right? Because he just yeah. he was so dependent on the data. And it just goes back to the earlier point about 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 sort of supplier risk and and platform risk. If you're susceptible to that, it can discount your valuation. I'd love to talk about. Yeah, it's really. It seems like a difficult business model because you have to. You have to get this influence on the platform and traffic, and then you have to get the date. There's just a couple pieces. Chicken or egg. Yeah. I mean, Airbnb, when it works, it's a beautiful thing, right? But getting both sides to coalesce on the same marketplace at the same time is really tough. And I think in his case, he was successful to getting 4 million unique users a month or whatever it was because he relied on his B-list celebrities to drive traffic. He wasn't advertising. So he he had that. And I think that was one of the really nice pieces of his business model is he the one side of the marketplace, he, he had a kind of killer way to get that to the table. The challenge was the other side of the marketplace was was supplying the data, and, and that was consolidated in five companies' hands, and actually really most of it was in one company's hands. And that's where the vulnerability of the business model was. So one part of the story I thought was very interesting was, that applies to any business is, or a lot of businesses, how to get developers to accept shares instead of cash. And maybe for a company, maybe it's not developers, maybe it's a CMO, maybe it's whatever position, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on on maybe what he did, but maybe how you've seen people navigate this, maybe because they're bootstrapping, or or maybe in this case, maybe they raise 800K, but really the product they're creating would take $5 million to produce, but because they got developers to accept shares, they can produce a much you know superior product to what their budget allows. So how what are some ways you find found people navigate this successfully um, as far as getting people buying shares or whatever, I guess, um, they've decided to be um, creative about. Yeah, I think this is just one of the many, many instances where, you know, I, th I think, I can't remember who said it or, or someone is sort of, it's a famous saying, but it, like, it takes, it takes money to make money or, you know, the rich keep just keep getting richer or, you know, this the sentiment that like once you become successful, it's way more likely and way more easier to get even more successful than it is to, to get your first rung kind of on the ladder. And this is another example of that. Sebastian had other startups that he had been successful with. And so every entrepreneur under the sun who's bootstrapping their company is going to ask their developers to take shares or their graphic designer to take shares. I mean, it's like the 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 kind of most common trick and not trick, but kind of most common and strategy to push up. Hey, I'll give you strategy. some shares, right? And so yeah. most people have sort of heard that before and thought, you know, I'll take the cash, thanks. <laughs> but in his case, because he had the track record of mm. successful startups in his past, it just carried a lot more legitimacy, right? Like I've I've built and sold these four companies and, and we're going to do the same with this fifth company and, and we're going to offer you some shares in return for developing the, the solution. That's a very different conversation than some like 20 year old coming out of high school that says, oh, you know, like take shares of my company. It's a totally different conversation. This, 
and so I don't have any really practical advice uh, for for brand new businesses that don't have a pedigree or a track record. But if you, I mean, again, if you do have a track record, merchandise that by all means. I mean, it gives you credibility, and it's one of the many. It's easier to raise money once you've had a successful business. It's easier to do all sorts of things once you've sort of had a win. Yeah. So one of the reasons, by the way, Jeremy, that I think, you know, like we talk and fight about this, fight this this sort of sense that. Uh, a lot that that business owners I think become inert in their company. You know, they build a, a successful business, and it may not be growing very much. You know, they may not be enjoying it very much, but they just think, yeah, it's so great. Why would I sell it? Well, I, I mean, when I talk to people like that, I talk to them about the freedom point. Number one. Number two. I think what I'd ask them is like, are you truly happy doing this, or are you inert? Uh, has inertia taken over? And number three, this is your training wheels business. Like, trust me when I tell you, if you if you hit a single in a baseball analogy and sell this company, your next company will be infinitely more successful, infinitely more valuable because you'll take everything you learn in this first company and you'll inject that into your next company. It's like your training wheels business. And I think just you know, there's so many examples of you know, the, the second, the third, the fourth business being much, much more successful than the first. So I guess in Sebastian's case, he'd had some stuff on, you know, he, he had some, some successful companies uh, already started that, uh, that gave him some credibility. You know, so the last question, this will be audience question, John, um, and we'll have to kind of glean from it a little bit of what they mean, but it's kind of, the question is about staying versus leaving right away from a founder perspective. And I'm not sure exactly what the person meant, but but it's an interesting question because in the case of, um, you know, uh, Aton, you know, he, him and his co-founder, one of them stayed, Aton left. And Carrie, Carrie was all in. It's like, I'll stay as long as you want. I, I don't want to leave. And in this one, Sebastian and the partners were like split. I think like, you you got in this conversation. Wait, like so you just left right away, but two other people were still there, and it was an interesting question or a dialogue. So I love to hear of kind of the uh, just maybe just speak to the staying versus leaving and, and the considerations people should and, and shouldn't make. Oh man, that's a, that's a great question, and and I'm not sure I have a <laughs> answer to it. It it's. Yeah. It's first of all, it's much more complicated when you've got partners because oftentimes the partner staying can can feel like they're left holding the bag a little bit, and the the other partner is sort of riding off into the sunset with a big whack of cash in their jeans, and and they kind of wonder like how did I how did I end up working for like a middle manager in 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 Des Moines, Iowa, and having to fly to you know that kind of stuff. It's it's not a great situation. So look, I think it, it can be a challenge. In, in the case of partners, I also think it's you have to be realistic in the industry that you're in. Industries like marketing services, like professional services, it's very rare for those businesses to trade hands without some sort of earnout for both founders or multiple founders to stay over time. Now, are there examples where it doesn't happen? Absolutely. We'll talk next month about a woman named Jody Cook who got out of a marketing service business without an earnout. So that's uh, an example, but it's pretty rare. So I think being mindful of the industry you're in, what what the sort of norm is, would would be helpful. That being said, you can try to negotiate for the majority of your 
cash up front. So the earnout is more like gravy than the foundation of, of your of your proceeds. So I think that's that's a good best practice. Um, and 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 there's some industries where earnouts are not uh, necessarily that significant. Um, you know, software as an example, manufacturing. It's it, sometimes they're just they're, they're just not as likely to be uh, tied to an earnout. So I think I think being realistic about the industry you're in is is also another strategy. Um, but it's one of those questions. I guess the third thing I'll share is just getting really clear in your own mind before the negotiation. Uh, if you have a, a red line, if there's a hard line in the sand that you're not willing to cross, either a proportion of your proceeds that are at risk, or uh, uh, you know a, a tenure of your transition period. Like if if five years is totally off the table, is three years okay? If three years is not okay, is one year okay? Like getting really clear in your own mind what those are before you go into negotiation and uh, kind of write them down, have a coach holds you accountable to those because once you're in it, 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 you know, the deal can take a life of its own. And I think you you may find you compromise on something that you don't want to compromise on. So I think being clear on on those things up front is, is probably also a good strategy. I love that. The one that I can't remember the guy's person's name that you interviewed with the pet app had like oh, yeah, a great. really a line in the sand of like, I am not travel, something about I am not traveling. And they brought up travel once he was on. He's like, he's like he was nice section about it. Three, paragraph two. Of our <laughs> exactly. deal. I said, I'm not, and they totally got it. So I, yeah. I love that part. And um, it was interesting. I was talking to someone I know recently and they'd sold their company. There were two co-founders and one of them was leaving. One of them was staying. And the one that was staying said, I thought it was interesting. They said, I'm going to look to see all the mistakes you make with leaving. So I won't make the mistakes you made with this company when I leave. So I thought that was an interesting perspective of like you say, like holding the bag. And this person perceived it as I'm just going to, I'm going to be like the older sibling. I'm going to watch what, you know, the parents do to you. And then I just, I'll just not do the same thing. I'll just ride under the, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So yeah. anyways, on that note, I think everyone should check out, check out built to sell.com, check, you know, subscribe to the, if you haven't, um, so you can go to the, you know, get ask questions and future webinars also go to built to sell.com slash radio and check out all the past episodes. So John, I don't know if there's any other place we should point people towards online. No, that's great. Yeah. Built to sell.com slash radio. And you can get all these uh, Sebastian's episode and the other three, they're all there. And, uh, along with speaker notes, transcripts. Uh, so I hope you enjoy them. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for doing this, Jeremy. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.